Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Eyes, and thanks for joining the Stages podcast. We continue our three-part conversation with actor, producer and mentor Peter Cousins. Cousins has carved a career as a leading man in a succession of blockbuster musicals. These shows dominated the Australian stage through the 80s and 90s. His soaring voice and handsome command of the stage made him the ideal choice for iconic roles in Aspects of Love. Les Miserables, West Side Story, Miss Saigon, The Phantom of the Opera and Showboat. We delve into these productions and receive a unique insight from the leading man. The circumstances that led to the opportunities and some of the colleagues Peter Cousins has had the opportunity to work alongside. It's a fascinating conversation and goes again to prove that there is no business like show business. So tell me, Pete... um. Chicago, a musical vaudeville. Was that the only time you were ever in the chorus? Yes, it was. The only time I was in the chorus. And you know what? I was only discussing this just the other day with uh, a friend of mine and observing those performers who seem to truly belong to the social unit we call musical theatre. And that is the ensembles, the ensemble players who tend to have careers that, that are ongoing for many, many years and, and until probably age catches up to you or other opportunities may come your way. But if you are, and we just mentioned Rodney, we just mentioned Troy Sussman and others who have been in that ensemble, featured ensemble world, well, for as long as I've known them, and they have formed the kind of the backbone, if you like, the, the sinews and the muscles of that musical theatre world. Um, many of us who, who came and I came into musical theatre really from, from television, um, it, it was things like Return to Eden and, and that moved me in because I, I actually had some sort of um, profile and profile became sort of... Um, you know, important, obviously, to producers uh, to a certain extent, especially small, smaller producers, but also not so much the Cameron Macintosh. But when you think of Cameron's very early days, it certainly was when you think of Les Mis. So all I'm saying is that if I'd remained in the chorus, I could be, given what I said about, you know, being able to sing till I'm 75, I could be still performing in, in musicals, potentially. And being a part of that that muscle that is that musical theatre world um, in Australia, but I actually haven't 
had that opportunity as 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 my as my sort of position, if you like, in the theatre is as a leading player, I rarely get that opportunity, and I haven't had that opportunity for many, many, many years. So I feel very much on the periphery of that of that muscle, that backbone that is that is musical theatre. Do you feel that that sparsity of work is um, because the industry can be ageist or that there is a lack of roles for uh, more senior gentlemen artists? I remember talking to Rod Dunbar and I asked him about when he decided to retire from the industry and he said to me, well, I think the industry retired me. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think um, you know, the industry and, and, and the making of art and the making of plays and the making of musicals, it's very subjective and very, it's very to do with, with you know other things and and people's individual responses and and also you as a performer and I think we change and we 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 don't offer what is what is required in the zeitgeist of of people's thinking and I think you've just got to accept that um, and and yes it is it is it can be a struggle um, trying to redefine where you can place yourself in in a world which you don't want to actually leave, and certainly I didn't, I've never wanted to leave the performing arts. Um, what I've tried to do is, is, is build on what I know and, to, and give it some sort of um, credibility, I think. I think that's really, and that, that has informed most of the last two decades for me. Um, there, there is part of me that is, and it goes back to me probably shouting at Richard Wherett, in the in the corridors of the of the old Sydney Theatre Company offices, um, that felt that actors are flaky, <laughs> and our lives and our lives uh, are seen by the system as being not that valid or not that not, not, not valid, but not that um, not as important as 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 the kind of in, dare, dare I say that word those sorts of activities that. Um, um, are explicitly seen as being part of the fibre of, of our society and culture. I mean, actors have always been the vagabonds and the gypsies and the kind of peripherals, haven't we, you know? And I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think it actually it's a really good thing that we are seen like that and we see ourselves as that. The minute we see ourselves as desperately wanting to be part of mainstream, part of an industry or part of a business, I think we, we do ourselves a disservice. We should always be the the people, the, the 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 subculture, if you like, that's kicking the shit out of anything and everything around us in an attempt to improve everything, and not in an ideological way, in any way, but in terms of the way the human spirit functions. You know, directors come and go, people come and go, producers come and go. You know, you weren't employable anymore in that particular thing. I just worked really hard at finding other ways to channel what I knew and what I wanted to do or what I felt was me into a whole lot of other other avenues. And that meant going to university again quietly on the side. It meant starting a theatre company. It meant um, getting involved with charities. It meant trying to find ways of, of using what I've got in a purposeful way, uh, in a meaningful way, um, to get rid of this sort of this flaky syndrome I kind of had in the in my, the back of my my um, mind that uh, I wanted to overcome. 
Well, during the, the 80s and 90s, your, your star shone brightly, and I'd like to revisit some of those musical theatre triumphs um, and, and get some, some of your stories related to those shows. Let's start with, with Blood Brothers, where you played the role of Eddie and uh, working alongside Russell Crowe and, and Chrissy Amphlett. Wonderful. I mean, uh, just, just the most beautiful experience um, in so many ways um, with Chrissy in particular, um, just to just to stand, you know, on stage with her singing at you with, with that extraordinary sound and, and, and carrying all that kind of baggage with her, that extraordinary kind of life lifestyle band, you know, the divinals and all of that with her. And she knew nothing about acting. And it didn't mean, didn't matter. This didn't matter. She just was, she was very much part of that um, thing. Um, and, and look, working with, um, with Russell, we were, we were, we were good mates for a lot of that time. We appeared on, we appeared on, we appeared on the front cover of Campaign together. Um, you know, I don't know whether you remember that, that, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I remember publication my Publication for the gay community. I know, my mother being. Yeah. As she in the you know being mortified, she think, my God, my God, you're on the front cover of campaign. People will think that I'm the mother of a homosexual. <laughs> it was all about her. Yeah, she <laughs> so, still signed but, the autographs. Yeah, she still signed the autographs. Yeah. So, um, in fact, I've got a copy of campaign that she signed. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so but and 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 we had a great time playing those roles, and, and we had a lot of fun. And um, Bob Baines and um, uh, was in it, and um, um, not Gia Zoe Caridis played the the sort of love interest between Mickey and Eddie. And then we just we just it just imploded with with something again a little bit ridiculous, which was these li- these live guns. That um, that he he had a live and in those days, you know, the, the whole business of of arm armory on stage, you know, was was nothing like it is today. You know, we had we had live blanks in those those guns, and there were there was guns being shot from the from the um, audience um, from the police, and uh, if you you know, there's at the end of, of Blood Brothers, there's this barrage of, of bullets, including on stage from Mickey, who's got this gun pointed at my head. He doesn't actually pull his. Uh, well, he, yes, he does pull his, but he doesn't. He doesn't actually shoot it at me. But what happened was, night after night, he'd be shot, and the gun would be thrown up into the air and land on the stage, invariably on top of me in some form or other, on parts of my body. And I got very nervous about all of this because I felt that that blank could easily be triggered. And also the gun was heavy, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So for, for a while I was, I was passing on, as one does in the theatre, you don't confront those sorts of issues. You go straight to stage management because you are trying to, you, you are trying to sustain your relationship with your fellow actor so it, it, on stage. So you make sure. So the stage manager was dealing with it, uh, but obviously not effectively because it went on for, for over a week or so, this, this uncontrolled use of the pistol. Now look, you know, I was a NIDA-trained actor who <laughs> had, had had huge experience in dealing with props and all sorts of things, you know. And as 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 Russell would say, you know, he came from a from a circus family, really, or or a Carna family in in 
in uh, in New Zealand and had never been probably in a in an actor's workshop in his life. And, um, and so, so you had this clash, this extraordinary clash of kind of you know of background and culture really. And and we came from such different different kind of backgrounds as as performers. And yeah, this one particular night it landed on me. I think it landed in my crutch, and I, I thought, oh, you know. In the same way that I had yelled at, at Richard Werrett, I took myself up to the upstairs uh, dressing room and I said, you know, um, you're going to have to bleep this out, but I said, you fucking amateur cunt. What the fuck do you think you're doing? You know, how many times, you know, the stage manager told you. Anyway, he, he swung um, a punch at me to, to hit me and he, he was held back um, by two of the other actors in that dressing room. And I was, I was continued to mouth off in that vein and provoked as he was, he headbutted me and broke my nose. And I didn't know that, of course, at the time, I just felt, you know, and I said something smart ass like, you know, oh, that, that doesn't worry me, <laughs> that doesn't worry me, blood pouring out of me. <laughs> anyway, so that was, that was the, uh, that was the event. I got home. Um, I think it was the Thursday night and uh, um, the Friday night um, we had to, we had to play the, the play together. The Saturday night, uh, Wilton Morley, who was in actually New Zealand, I think at that time, but whoever the other producer was at the time, could have been even someone like, um, what's the name, Koori, who runs the Empire. Um, Greg Koori? Yeah, Greg was on that, on that producing team. So asked me to come in and, and Russell to apologise um, for, you know, what had happened, apologise to each other, you know, get over it. And I said, look, you know, because I'm such a good boy, I said, yes, all right, I, I apologise. I did say the wrong thing. I did, I did certainly provoke him and, and um, you know, well, God love him. Russell just refused to apologise. So huh? we had to play the next two nights, the next two performances, the afternoon and, the, and I think the Saturday night. Um, and he left the production. I, I had my daughter's christening the next day, and I've got wonderful photographs of fabulous black eyes, which I, you know, see as trophies. The next, on the Monday night, the Danny Hiller, who was the director from England, who was still in the country, thankfully, came and read the, um, read the role for, for two or three months. In fact, he knew it because he, he directed it before, I think, in, in London. We played, I think we played a week together and was, we, he was fabulous in the role. And um, then, then um, um, we got an Australian actor to take it over. Anyway, I remember in all the bars in Sydney at the time, you know, whether it was um, Kinsella's probably, wherever it was, we were all drinking at those, those days. Everyone was said, how extraordinary, what an extraordinary thing to happen. That bloody New Zealand actor will never work again. <laughs> There's a grief that can't be spoken There's a pain goes on and on Empty chairs and empty tables Now my friends are dead and gone Here they talked of revolution 
Here it was they lit the flame Here they sang about tomorrow And tomorrow never came From the table in the corner They could see a world reborn And they rose with voices ringing And I can hear them Two thousand performances as Marius. Yeah, one of the one of the most enjoyable, fantastic times in the theatre. Up there with Nicholas Nickleby. Um, same, interestingly enough, the same um, originating um, creative group. If you if you count the you know um, Trevor Nunn and and um, and uh, John Caird, I think, and others who 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 were responsible for Nicholas Nickleby and the RSC. Same similar process, taking a big book and turning it into something rather extraordinarily. And um, yeah, so you know, the whole show is imbued with, with certainly with Trevor's sensibilities and and that that original cast and Cameron's extraordinary, savvy, heartfelt, genuine producing skills and love of the people who worked in the theatre. Not only the actors who we who we dearly loved, but also crew, other producers, fellow producers, you know, even the, or importantly, the accountant. But, you know, he, he, I think he was, um, in those days anyway, um, just, again, a, a wonderful person who would, who would take such an interest in everyone. And he'd, he'd turn up um, two or three times a year and I'd throw a party and there'd be this wonderful thing with Cameron in. And, you know, he'd, he'd, um, he just kept that whole sense of being valued you know, being especially when you get buried in a show like that, as as we all were for a long time, touring around every three months, moving. Many of us had kids with Rob Guest, um, Phil Quast, me, Peter Carroll. We all were dealing with Rob, Robbie, um, Thomas, with little Katie. You know, we we travelled like this gypsies and vagabonds. And the fantastic thing was, Cameron let the let us load up all our cots and and high chairs and things. Into the into the in with the with the set, we we deliver everything to the stage door when we're moving on, and it would arrive. And then we'd all go off to the to the airport, and the the the, um, the big semi trailers would take all our stuff across. In one in one case, across to um, to Perth, but also up to Brisbane, um, and you know, and, and and totally totally encouraged that sense of family amongst us all. And we um, we toured like that, you know. Um, it was a just a, a a beautiful experience for. Uh, I just wish my kids were, had been a little bit older, but the the two of them were were, were very young, um, 
and and the youngest wasn't around because we played we played you know a while in 14 months in sydney and then another 10 months or so in melbourne wherever it was and then those who didn't get into phantom of the opera stayed <laughs> with les mis because <laughs> i'd put i'd put my hand up for raul at the time um and that was my plan in our head in my head that that's where i'd end up you know but that didn't happen 2017 uh you returned to les mis in the role of jean valjean how is that informed by that many years and that many performances as Marius? What are you able to bring to Valjean? Well, I got such a shock because I thought, so this is what the fucking show is about. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was all about the kind of students and the and the and the um, demonstration and the and the kind of fighting for freedom. But I suddenly discovered really the show was about what it was to be a father and and how to and the kind of sacrifices you make for the things you you think are to be treasured in another human being it had nothing to do with ideology it had nothing to do with anything other than obviously a belief system and a set a set of values um, that that transcended the ideology of the freedom fighters this was the real stuff of human sacrifice and um human and, and sticking to to your, your values and your beliefs and your and your sense of and i realized too that it's this great extraordinary relationship between father and, and daughter i feel you joy I feel you I was half convinced I'd waken Satisfied enough to dream you Happily I was mistaken Joanna You've been in uh, an extraordinary position of, with several musicals, playing double roles. I mean, Les Mis, Marius and Valjean. And in Sweeney Todd, you've played both Anthony and Tobias. How do those opportunities come up? Anthony came up as really a, a stepping stone of the evolution of my relationship with Gail Edwards, who I also adore. And she she first cast me in a thing called Boojum, which was um, in South Australia for the festival down there by uh, Martin and Wesley, well, Martin Wesley Smith, the brothers. And they'd written this thing about um, Alice in Wonderland and um, Lewis Carroll. Um, and, uh, and she, and again, I was cast, and I know this for a fact, it was because I had a profile. I'd been on television. It was after Return to Eden. She had, we had met before, um, but that began the relationship. And then the next year, I think, or the year after, I think the festival happened every two years, and I can't remember, yeah. but we did 
She wanted to do Sweeney Todd with Lyndon Terracini, who is the only other living person in Australia who was taught by Madame Marty as well, um, dear, dear Lyndon. Anyway, Lyndon and uh, Greg Jurisic um, and, uh, of course, um, um, Tony Taylor and Nancy, Nancy Hayes. And Meg Chilcott, who Meg was actually taught by, well, soon after this, was going to also enter into Rita Hunter's studio. So all these sort of strange little little connections. And Meg was playing the, uh, the beggar woman. Both those experiences were, were, were extraordinary insofar as my relationship with Gail was totally set. I, 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 you know, you know in, my, in my madness, I became, I, and she didn't need it, but I became her prote- protector, fighting off the slings and arrows of, of the, the Wesley Smiths who were hating their production of Boojum. Um, the Queen came to see that and she was astounded and the press went wild because we had some, some nudity on stage. Um, and then we had the other thing in, in Sweeney Todd was, was um, there was a bit of an outcry from those who came from the opera world of having to do tech rehearsals um, and having to sing during a tech rehearsal. And, and, and we, we, of course, the, the seven shows, a, eight shows a week people were kind of, you know, astounded by this sort of absolute preciousness about their voices. And um, I remember Lyndon and I had quite a battle about all of that as well. It was uh, a beautiful production and, and similarly um, and wonderful to be a part of. And Lyndon was, was fantastic in the production. In fact, I've got, a, I've got an old black and white um, archival of it. And it's interesting, interesting going back and, and it, was, it was beautifully designed. And, and uh, uh, I think Ken Wilby was the designer and the costumes were, were by that lovely guy. Anyway, I'm rambling now about, about Sweeney Todd, but I'm just trying to kind of plant Gail there because Gail then became very responsible for me kind of getting into getting into Sweeney Todd, getting into Les Mis. I missed out the first time uh, to, to, to Simon Burke who played that role and I joined in the, in the end of the first year. I still have a note um, from Trevor Nunn, which I've kept, which he sent to me after that first audition, just explaining what, it's an extraordinary thing to do, and, and, and I think back, and it's a it's a lesson often, I think, for directors to take the time to, you know, and obviously it was between Simon and me, and 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 quite rightly he he made the choice as as you do, and and, and every actor knows that's that's what happens, and you can't get mealy mouthed about it or whatever. It's that's the nature of the game. But he he made the effort of of actually writing to me just to just to to again I expect. Uh, not console, but to to validate what I'd done and appreciate and and you know just say how tough these calls are, etc. And you know, so it was and it was it was interesting because it made me feel totally um, purposeful that the, the act of auditioning had not been a waste of time. Um, you know, I'd, I'd made an impression, and and if, and if nothing else, that was that was enough because a year later when I as the as the cards are, are turned up again, um, I got the opportunity to do it, and there was obviously no opposition to it from anyone, um, including that that director. So earlier in your career too, I, wasn't there a production of West Side Story, and you got down to the line with Philip Gould? Yeah, yeah, yes, that was um, that was a kind of a uh, a bit of a an interesting time for Graham Murphy, who was going to be the director choreographer of it. 
uh, Dobbs Franks, who'd, who'd come out with West Side Story back in the 60s, was the musical director. And they did this little audition video, follow, followed, um, followed Philip and I vying for that role. And um, the girl who was playing, uh, who ended up playing Anita, I think she was a South African um, and girl and, and just the way the production was being built. But as it turned out, of course, the, the producers whose names have escaped me didn't realise that, of course, all the choreography is copyrighted. So you can't do anything with that with Jerome. So Graham was going to re-choreograph the whole thing. You didn't have those rights. So Graham eventually just sort of had to leave the production. Um, and, and Angela Punch McGregor's husband, Ross McGregor, took over and um, someone else did the choreography and, and I missed out on the role. Um, I remember <laughs> singing and it was the, in the dance company, the Sydney Dance Company, because that, that, the dance, you know, Graham had begun that dance company. And I'd known Graham from earlier because I'd been a supernumerary, not only with, with Nureyev, but also in the Australian Ballet. And with Janet Vernon and Graham in the in the ensemble, they were in the, they were soloists, but we shared a dressing room, and they were just so sick of and were planning this extraordinary kind of new dance company, and um, being so outrageously um, naughty on stage together because and with everyone else because they were sick of what they were doing, and and as it turned out, you know, Graham went on. Anyway, I was in that dance, little the, the dance um, company rehearsal room where they had this terrible old piano on a par with the one I. Um, I first discovered at boarding school in Armidale, it was that beaten up. And when it, the, the piano player started to play, there was so much sustain going on that I couldn't, for the life of me, hear much of what I was supposed to do. Anyway, I finished singing, um, could be there's something to do any day, I will know. Right. And uh, Dobbs, <laughs> Dobbs Frank said to me, you said, Peter, did you know you, you sang that whole song just uh, a half a tone sharp? <laughs> <I'll think. laughs> Anyway, I, I didn't get a role, of course. So there you go. The most beautiful sound I ever heard. Maria, 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 Maria. All the beautiful sounds of the world in a single word. Maria. Maria, 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 Maria. I've just met a girl named Maria, and suddenly that name will never be the same to me. Maria, I've just kissed a girl named Maria, and suddenly I found a wonderful song. How did you escape cats? Well, I went to, I was asked to go and see it actually, to take over from, from um, Andrew O'Keefe, yeah. yeah. I think he was playing one of those. And I came into, Susan and I went to see it. Um, and it's an extraordinary story because we went to the Theatre Royal and they wanted me to watch this because would I be interested in going into it? Um, it wasn't a huge dancing role. I, I would never call myself a dancer. I move okay, but I, I was 
Yeah, I think it's uh, Monkus Strap. He's like the narrator. Or, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's it. Yeah, Monkus Strap. My wife said to me, "Look, I just you." I said, "Well, look, I don't know whether I could do this makeup." And she said, "I don't think you can do these leotards either. <laughs> this, this unitard, I can't. I wouldn't be able to come to the theatre to see you wear, wearing this." <sighs> <laughs> I escaped cats. Um, I I jumped into aspects of love, but that was that was really one of those things where I I was rejected um, in the first round of auditions. And fortuitously, I and I mainly because I basically couldn't sing the B flat, and 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 Gail was directing it obviously, and so she was she was keen, but I there was no way at that stage. So I went and did um, I worked with um, in a show called Closer Than Ever. Um, oh, it might be in Shire. Might be in Shire, and we did it at the Tilbury, the Tilbury Hotel, uh, with um, Robin Arthur and and was it Bobby. Um, Barry Langrish, me, can't think of the, uh, the other two. Anyway, in it, I had to see, I had to, I had to find a B flat at the end of um, "What Am I Doing Up on the Roof?" What am I doing? Anyway, so I think it's in that that has the B flat. And um, to sing it so in my again in my sort of desperation for work because by that time I had two kids I had not had any substantial work since coming out of Les Mis uh, so like a year and Sue's was going to go into Gypsy with with Geraldine but and Richard was directing that and Richard and, and Sue's were very close as well she was going to play one of the strippers anyway after the first it, it was it was folded the first week of rehearsal Dennis um, ran out of money. So that was a tragedy. So we were left really floundering. I was working at the Cellar Masters um, selling wines over the phone. Um, Sue was doing the same thing. And I, I, and I was doing this, uh, the cabaret at Tilbury, and I just got a recording of me singing this. And I sent it off to Peter Casey and said, um, how is this? Is, is this? How's this sounding? Because I knew they hadn't cast it, or if they had, I didn't care. I just kept on. And in those days, you wrote you wrote to directors. You quite happily wrote to directors and said, you know, you'd like to be doing this or you'd like to work with them or I think, you know, blah, blah. And so that informed the way I, I dealt with with um, with directors. So I did. And they came back to me. And they, I came and did another round of auditions some months later and um, and got the role. Um, so quite out of the out of the box, really. And uh, if nothing else it's a lesson in 
if you really want it, just keep on having a go. And you never, you know, it doesn't guarantee that you'll get it, but you know, you know you've given it your best shot. Why did I go back to see her? did that the same with with Miss Saigon too I um I got the thrown out of the first round oh really of, um, mm, of auditions and then I, I rang up I rang up my agent and said look you know Cameron's in town and I can't believe I can't believe I can't believe that they, they don't want to see me but of course I was I was auditioning for the engineer right not not the Chris. I mean, I, Chris was a nineteen-year-old farm boy, but I remember, and I was I was much older than that. And I I saw myself as Jonathan Price. This was my chance to get the, you know, the acting actor out of me. So I spent a lot of time in the sun. I plucked my eyebrows and tried to turn Asian. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> the things you do. The things you do. And I went and sang um, whatever that song is. And I remember, I remember, and I ran into, I ran into Alain. Bill, who I'd known, and I said, "Oh, Peter, it'd be nice to see you. What, what are you, what are you auditioning for?" I said, oh, for the engineer." He said, "No, no, 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 no you should not." <laughs> I said, oh, "Yes, I'm far too old for, for anything else." And anyway, I went in and sang, and and they obviously in the darkness, in the theatre, they obviously, because there was a terrible silence after I'd done my tour de force of in the engineer's um, song. Anyway, I could hear this. This patter down the stalls and down on onto the stage. Darling, darling, said Cameron, what do you think you're doing? What on earth was that? <laughs> so there was some mumbling, and Alain Bubil said, Hey, give, give him, give him, go and get him to do why God. So they a terrible accent, very French accent. I think it was somewhere to do with some Italian. But anyway, I, I went outside and I actually had sung it prior to this and I came back a, an hour and a half later, sang that. And then they said, go away, come back tomorrow and see if you can learn some more of the piece. Here's some more music, so, which I did. I came back and I went away. He rang me like 10 days later and I said, can you come over to London? We want you to come and join um, Joanna Ampill um, to see what the chemistry is like between the two of you because she's coming out to play the Kim. Anyway, I went over 
got the terrible rash, met, um, you know, Dumbledore, Richard Harris in, in the pub and at, at, at the Savoy, got incredibly drunk, went to see Miss Saigon. After I'd been rehearsing every, I'd been rehearsing every morning with the associate director at a studio in London, um, bits and pieces with Joanna in preparation for the showing, which I thought was on Friday, but it ended up being put forward to the Wednesday night. So I'd had two days of rehearsal and the Wednesday, the third night. And so I went Wednesday night, I ended up drunk because I'd only rehearsed in the morning. That's, that was my, that was when I did it. And then I, that Wednesday night, I went to see the show pretty pie eyed and had sort of no really memory of what I saw. And the next morning I turned up and who should be, who should be in this little theater where five guys called Mo was playing at the West End was where we were doing this audition, was Simon Burke. Again, <laughs> after Les Mis, there he was in the theatre, I thought, what the fuck? And Simon had been doing exactly the same thing that I had been doing, but in the afternoon with Joanna. Wow. And with, no one knew. I didn't know. So um, that, was, that was, was sort of like, like oh. So because I thought that I was sort of, I was there. It was just a, you know, just a made a matter of. So, but I didn't realise that actually I was, I was still kind of hunting for the for the for the gig. So I did my bit, and um, and he said, "Darling, darling, go and go and rest in the dressing room." So I lay there on this guy's dressing room in one of the guys playing Five Guys. I I now know the what his I knew what his children looked like. I was there for like seemingly an hour and a half, two hours, waiting for someone to kind of, you know come and speak to me. And anyway, eventually um, Cameron went to the door and um, came in. He said, darling, 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 we'd love you. Love you to do it. Now, one thing I want you to do is go down to the studios tomorrow, Abbey Row, and just sing along with, with, with the um, orchestra down there just to get a feel for it a bit. And, and uh, they've got a, we've got some recordings down there of the orchestra playing a few bits and pieces. We'd love just to hear you just, you know, so you've got that and whatever. And so I went down the next day and had this fantastic time in uh, in Abbey Road Studios while I sang sang along with this 90-piece orchestra. Why does Saigon never sleep at night? Why does this girl smell of orange trees? How can I feel good when nothing's right? Why is she cool when there is no breeze? Vietnam, you don't give answers, do you, friend? Just questions that don't ever end. Why, God, why today? I'm all through here, on my way. There's nothing left here that I'll miss. Why send me now a night like this? Bed. Why am I back in a filthy room? Why is her voice ringing in my head? Why am I high on a cheap perfume? Vietnam! Hey, look, I mean you no offense. But why does nothing here make sense? Why, God, show your hand? Why can't one guy understand 
much more I never felt confused before I mean what's your plan I can't help her no one can I like my memories as they were but now I'll leave Little did I know was the audition also for the symphonic recording. Again, secrets, you know, but I was, I was glad I wasn't told because, you know, I was just having a having a ball singing this stuff, which I, you know, painfully learnt backwards. So I then went off to LA some weeks later and recorded um, that symphonic recording, international cast. So all these, I never saw another actor. I just was stuck in a studio with, with David Caddick, the the um, producer, and um, I'd never even sung a show. I had to make it up with David trying to tell me what happened next because I couldn't remember a thing from the drunken night. You know, I'd, I'd been at the theatre. I'd, I'd missed it totally, and I couldn't tell anyone that I was. So that was that was my experience of of getting into um, into Saigon because you know months before that audition when Cameron came out. Whoever the associates, whoever who the first team that came out, um, had sort of you know had passed over me because of uh, I think they wanted Jeffrey Rush or someone for the engineer in those days before they 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 realised they needed to get um, um, you know a, a, some sort of um, the casted in an Asian with an Asian person yeah yeah culturally appropriate culturally appropriate absolutely and yeah, that yeah. and you know. I don't know whether it's the magic of camera or the magic of um, of Alain Boubin, Alain and and, and um, Schomburg. Um, that show was another defining moment for me. It was just an extraordinary again because it it it, it provided me some credibility in, in what I was doing, some purpose. There was there was meaning in it. It, me, it seemed to mean. A lot, particularly to the wives of Australian diggers from Vietnam. Strangely enough, they'd be there at the stage door, um, and and also we did a lot of fundraising. Again, we 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 um, there was a wonderful woman called Christine whose name is, but anyway, she sat up she set up orphanages in Vietnam, and we had another kind of push of of funding and for a purpose and for a cause within the cast and within the the show, fully supported by 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 the producers and Cameron and and you know raise money for those orphanages and so things like that happened as well as that they were very christian it was a very christian spiritual cast of 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 um uh, mainly for influences from from the filipino kids and you know there'd be prayers before we went on and there was this great sense of many of those kids living the the, the story of miss saigon themselves night Heightens each sensation, darkness stirs and wakes imagination. Silently, the senses abandon their defenses. 
slowly, gently, night unfurls its splendor, grasp it, sense it, tremulous and tender, turn your face away from the garish light of day, turn your thoughts away from cold unfeeling light, and listen to the music of the night. Close your eyes and surrender to your darkest dream. Purge your thoughts of the life you knew before. Close your eyes, let your spirit start to Phantom of the Opera, which, of course, again, you visit that twice as Raoul for something like 2,000 performances. But then for a long time, you are the only Australian before Josh Peterman to play the Phantom in the West End for, for 11 months. Tell us a bit about Phantom. Well, that came so out of the blue for me. I mean, I was, I was 40 at the time, which is a good age to play the Phantom, but... I wasn't being cast in roles like that. I just had completed playing Tony in West Side Story um, and touring New Zealand and and um, Melbourne and Sydney um, in that production of um, Judge, Ian Judge, Ian Judge's production that, that Maria Pryor and a guy from the United States had had played a couple of years before and they remounted it with me and, and um, Marie Johnson. Going to say Audra McDonald. I don't know because she reminds they re, she reminds me of her for some odd reason. I think that's anyway. a very odd reason. <laughs> yes, I know. Very odd. I think I've heard and I think I've heard Marie singing some of Audra's stuff. Repertoire, right? Anyway, repertoire. But um, she, we so I've been playing this 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 nineteen year old boy um, and loving it. You know, it was like the, my dream come true. I'd I'd first seen West Side Story in Tamworth with my mum and dad in. 1960 something or other, and I've fallen in love with 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 um, Natalie um, Wood and just wanted to sing Maria. And I was very young, you know, just but anyway. So the opportunity turned up with in that show, and it was a, a, an endless joy to do. And then I was at the bar at uh, the Capitol, and um, Cameron's general manager, his name has also escaped me. Lovely guy said to me what have you of you we we're interested in we've got to recast the phantom would you be interested in um in auditioning for it and it requires you to send videos over to Hal Prince and to um Lloyd Webber and obviously to Cameron and I said well, look I'm on my way to New Zealand and he said don't worry we've organized already with um Steve who's who's, who's the MD and um he's gonna take he's gonna teach you the role and you can you can you'll sing it there in New Zealand. So Robbo came over, John Robinson came over, and he had a suite in one of the big hotels just near the 
near the we were doing West Side Story there in the um in the big entertainment center place, the big theater there. Altai, I um, can't remember the name of it. And um, he played the piano. There was a piano in the suite. Um, and Robbo filmed me up, up against the speckly wall. Um, Michael Jackson had been the previous guest in that room. So, you know, I was, it felt I was always in good company. And these videos then went across to, to New York and to London. And then three weeks later, they said, you've got 10 days to get to London for rehearsals. And you, you, so the whole family and Cameron in his, again, his extraordinary generosity and, and care and, you know, validation and belief, you know, flew my three children, Suze, looked after us, um, found, a, found, a, found us a beautiful little, little upstairs, downstairs terrace in, in Fulham um, and housed us there for 11 months. Um, and just really just cared for, for us, flooming across to New York to work with Hal on the role, came back. And um, I had the most, um, you know, def another defining moment in, in playing that role. Um, and it was sort of like the, um, the pointy end of the triangle for me in, for, in terms of experience to an understanding myself as a performer, having the courage to do things. I, I, I suggested to Hal something different for the ending, which he, he let me do. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was, for me, it was very much an actor's piece. I mean, I, I, I you know, I could sing it okay, but I don't think I'm, I'm the greatest exponent of, of that music. Um, but, I, but I had huge satisfaction doing it and, and discovered a whole lot of things about um, music and myself and singing and, and things, people. And then Hal just came into the dressing room one day, he was in, in visiting London, and he said, will you come and do, um, will you come and do um, Showboat. Showboat in, yeah, for live end. And, um, and the, that uh, Canadian producer, and this was about three or four months, and it was very hard to refuse Hal. One of that's a regret I do have is, is not staying in London with, with Cameron, because Cameron was furious, and, and the fact that, for one, I was going off to live end to do show, but the two, he wanted me to stay for another six or 12 months doing the show. Um, and I probably would have quite easily fallen into being one of his ensemble when I say ensemble, I mean leading player ensemble performers roaming around those casts because I was still able to do, you know, I could have done the, the, the Javert's and the Jean Valjean's, I presume. And, but uh, it, it, it's sort of a regret, but sort of other things wouldn't have happened. Um, Did Cameron time. forgive you after a while? We haven't really. We spoke. He came out to to uh, Sydney when I was just putting Kookaburra together and he came in the rehearsal room and watched a bit of us doing Pippin and sort of wished me well and warned me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he That's warned great. me. And he war had warned me a few years before because somewhere he came out around about 2000 and I was at a party with him and I was talking about this idea I had. And um, he, he warned me off it then as well. And he warned me again. Please join us in the finale episode of The Stages Triple Bill with Peter Cousins as we explore his artistic endeavours following his triumphant stretch 
as leading man in the repertoire of performances explored in today's episode. We'll look at his time as a producer, creating the national musical theatre company Kookaburra. Peter is candid and passionate, reflecting on the possibilities and art of steering such an organisation. That's in part three of Stage's conversation with Peter Cousins. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.